0: Writer A.J. Jacobs grew up in New York City, and he comes from what he self-describes as a very secular Jewish household. In fact, he would say the most Jewish thing his family did all year long was they would put the Star of David up on top of their Christmas tree. I know your life doesn't always make sense either, so we're, we're not quick to judge on that. But, but faith wasn't really a part of his life, but he did know that he had a Jewish heritage. And as a writer, he's looking for interesting things to do. And so he decided he would go through his scripture and he would highlight all of the commands that were meant to be followed. And he determined for one year, he was going to follow all of the commands, however out of context they were. He was going to dress the way that scripture said to dress. He was going to eat the way that scripture said to, to eat. And he, some things he knew he couldn't exactly do. And so he'd fill his pocket with pebbles. And so if he saw someone breaking a command rather than stone them to death, he would just throw little pebbles at them in an attempt to, to follow all of the teachings of the Old Testament. And he chronicled his endeavor. And it's kind of humorous in some ways. But he committed an entire 12 months Every single day, eating this way, dressing this way, living this way. And to me, one of the most incredible things about it is that someone could determine to be so knowledgeable about the words of God without ever getting to know the person of God. He spent a year following instructions, but never seeking a person. He followed laws, but he never entered into a relationship. And what can be clearly seen through his authorship of his book and the joke of following scripture for a year, we can clearly see the hypocrisy and the separation of commands and relationship in that. But we often don't see it in ourselves or in the living out of being a church. It's so easy to get caught up in. I just do these certain things. Like here's my check boxes that I know I need to do to fulfill my obligations as someone who attends church regularly and we do the things but we never enter into a personal relationship with God. And so often, we see that in churches. We see that in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and, and he talks about it with them. He says, you, you give your sacrifices down to the ounce and you follow the rules and the regulations, but you've neglected mercy. You've neglected the love of God. And he's corrective to them. And today, if you, if you did your job and you read your section of the story, we just went through the Ten Commandments, and I want to get into some of these, and I want to make sure that we understand as people on the other side of the resurrection of Christ in history what these commands mean to us, because I believe there's confusion within the church in, in regards to how do we follow the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament mean? Why does God seem so different in the Old Testament versus how he is now? And I want to assure you, God never changes. He is the same through the ages. His promises are always true, no matter what has happened in history. And I believe today is gonna be helpful and encouraging. And so what I wanna do is I wanna talk about the law, the commandments and the law together. And I wanna teach you three things regarding the law and its purpose. And if you have your Bible, you can be open to Exodus 20. You might want to bookmark or find the spot in Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament as well, because we're going to be looking at these passages. And Exodus chapter 20 is where we see the listing of, of, the, of the Ten Commandments. And this is the first thing that I want you to know as we get ready to read the, the Ten Commandments. What the law does, what the commandments do, is the law can show us our sin. I'm going to give you something the law can do, something the law cannot do, and something the law continues to do today. And the first one, the thing that the law can do, it can show us our sin. And if you read the Ten Commandments and you apply them properly, you should recognize just like me and just like everybody else sitting around you that, oh my goodness, I have broken these things on an hourly basis. All right? And so it starts off in in verse 3 and it says, you shall have no other gods before me. When Exodus 3 says, have no other gods before me, I want you to know that as this was being given to the Israelites, all the other nations had many gods. The people of Israel were coming out of 400 years of slavery. And they had adapted to the way that Egypt lived. And each one of the plagues, and we talked about this before, each one of the plagues that God sent against Egypt, it was defeating a different one of Egypt's gods to show that there is only one true God. And so the common way of living was just worship them all. Just include them all, throw yours into the mix. And so when we see the instruction that there is only one God which we should worship, and you say, well, you know, we we have our American idols, and we have the people that we turn into gods. You know, this person is a basketball god. This person is a pop god. This person is a financial person who's worthy of worship because of all the money they've raised. And we elevate people to where we follow their teachings, their instructions, their convictions above those of the teachings and instructions of Scripture we turn many things into God still today. When you take something and you give it authority and power over your, your, over your spiritual life and over your obedience to the teachings of scripture, you are placing something in the position of God in your life. Parents, we have to be careful that we do not take our children and hold them up as idols and turn them into something that is to be served rather than something that is supposed to be instructed and disciplined and taught how to serve Christ. It's, it's amazing as you, as you read this and, and, and the people have just experienced this amazing deliverance from Egypt and they receive these commandments and then it's like a second later, they're making and forging an idol before God. The commandments were, were, were given, but they were almost immediately broken, just even in the first one. And the first one starts there for a reason. It starts with God, because when you get your relationship with God right, all of these other things tend to line up. The first four commandments are about your relationship with God. The first one, you should have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of worship, no, no idols. You, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Many of your translations will, will say, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And, and, and vain is really the best word when it says misuse there. And, and we, we throw the word vain around, but we often don't necessarily know the biblical context, of the way the word is used. It, it means like hollowed out. Don't use it in a hollowed out or empty fashion. The way that it would be explained is that when you say the name of God, you are supposed to say it with reverence in your heart and in your mind. And any time that you say his name, that you refer to him, and you say his name or you refer to him in a way that is devoid of the full value of worship that you should have in your voice when you speak about him, that's taking his name in vain. We think that it's only when you say, you know, OMG, or when it's put into context where profanity is used. But I want to tell you what Scripture teaches about not taking the Lord's name in vain. It's missing the fullness that should be in your voice when you say it. Now, why is God tic-tac-y about this? No, God's not tic tacky about this. God is not being, being petty about this. What has happened is we often begin to shrink God down into our own size where it's like, people can say my name however they want to. Like, I'm just a person like anybody else. It doesn't matter if a child refers to me by first name or whatever. Like And, and we get loose because about the way that people say our name and we just apply that to God. But I want to increase your understanding of the holiness of God, the perfection and the power and the might. We are made from dust. And God breathed life into it. And like standing at a foot of a mountain and recognizing how small you are in the universe. We need to understand the expanse and the power of who God is. And when we say his name and we refer to his person, there should be reverence in our heart. That's what that commandment is teaching. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That there's a day of rest and a day of worship that we protect from all other work and God gave us this not as something to limit us but something to protect us. The Sabbath is meant to be a blessing and there are things that lead us into worship. The next six show us about our relationship with others. Honor your father and mother. That's an interesting one. Not just because it's so difficult to do. And yes, you could even expand honor your mother and father to your in-laws as well if you didn't think it was difficult enough to do with just your parents. All right? But that one comes with the promise that you may live long in the land. It's an interesting thing about that commandment. And it's an instruction from God that one of the ways you honor him is by honoring your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And those feel so common to us because it's the law of all the lands. It wasn't the law of the land of that day. If you were strong enough, you take it. Whether it be a person's life or a person's wife. If you're strong enough, it could be yours. This was changing the direction of the way that nations would run. You shall not give false testimony. It doesn't matter if it benefits you. It doesn't matter if it saves you on your taxes. It doesn't matter if it propels you forward in your career. It doesn't matter if it saves you from an argument. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet your neighbor's fill in the blank, his house, his wife, his livestock, his possessions, his Porsche, his outfit, whatever it is, you shall not covet. And so these things, I hope that as you read them, you have an honest enough sense of your nature to be able to affirm, I don't meet the criteria of getting all 10 of these right all the time. And lest we have any confusion or I have any confusion about the way you see it, I'm going to need your assistance in a minute. I'm going to ask you a question, and then if you agree or if you would say, yes, that's me, I'm included in that, I'm just going to need you to give me a nice Southern. Yep. All right. Can you do that with me? We're going to practice. I'm going to point at you. Can you do that? Yep. All right. Good. That's all I need from you. All right. Have you ever lied once? All right. Have you ever said God's name without recognizing his fullness? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever kept something that was not yours? All right. So, by your admission, and any logical, honest person would say this, that we are a lying, thieving, lusting, God profaning people. All right. So I want to make sure that we engage with this a little bit because our society believes and states, well, I'm just a good person. But each one of us who would say, well, I'm just a good person, we also would say, I'm a lying, thieving, lusting, God-profaning person. I, I want to I compare it to this. I-, I brought my little school board with me today. And, you know, wrote my name in old school cursive, just like my teacher used to write my name on her board. Because if you went to school 80s, 90s, before, you probably remember the system where if you did something wrong in class, the teacher would just go write your name on the board. Yeah, uh, yep. I like that. The yep's going to follow me all the way through the service and we'll roll with it. And then if you did something again, you'd get a line next to your name. And depending on your teacher, when it was either two lines or three lines, you got to go to the principal's office. And at least at the Naples Christian Academy that I attended for a couple of years in Naples, Florida, when I was growing up, that that principal could still put their hands on you. Which, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying, you understood that when your name was going up on the board, what your future was going to be. And I want to just, you know, compare, you know, I don't have enough time or I don't have a big enough whiteboard to really accurately track what, you know, my record with the Ten Commandments would be. But we're just going to start there. You can pretend that those represent 100,000 if you want to, to like maintain greater accuracy. But here's the thing that we get messed up. We recognize I've gone through a period where I put a bunch of marks on the board where I broke the commandments. And then we mistakenly think that the way that I'm gonna get rid of those marks is by stopping making any marks. But scripture is absolutely clear that the wages of sin, any sin, is death, is separation from God. You cannot approach the gates of heaven and say, I was really good for the last six months Six hours, six minutes of my life. I was unconscious and I did not sin at all for the last six minutes of my life. I was a very good person. The commandments do not restore your relationship to God. The commandments have no function of repairing who you are. What the commandments can do is they can help you understand this is God's expectation and his calling. And when you break it, you have broken your relationship with him. But there is no amount of pausing that will deal with what you have done. And so for every single one of us, for the person delivering this message, I want you to understand that we are guilty of sin. And none of us, none of you, no one can stand before a just and holy God and say, I deserve entrance to heaven because other people sinned more than me. God's standard is perfection. God's standard is holiness. And the function of the commandments is to help you recognize that you are sinful. That you do not meet the criteria. And and, and it clarifies it this way. You might be like, well, there's one of the commandments I've never broken. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 says, Cursed is anyone who does not fulfill the words of this law by doing them And all the people responded to that, and and they said, amen. But it's when you break one, you break all of them. 1 John 4.20 describes, and it says, the way that we treat each other. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. I want you to see the connection. That if you say, I do love God, as the commandment instructs me to, but I have a problem with this, it doesn't work that way. And each one of the commandments are interconnected in a way that if you're lustful after something that is not yours, that affects your love for God because your love of God should fuel your holiness, not just your sense of obligation. Each one of the commandments are interconnected, and when you break one of them, you break them all. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll put this up on the screen. The, the book of Galatians is a really great read, especially as you're looking to understand the, the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Galatian church, and he's trying to help them understand this because what so many began with belief and faith and and, and the empowerment of the Spirit of God, there's people who are coming and say, "Okay, it's great that you started with faith, but now you need to follow all the rules and the regulations." And you need to be a Jewish person and, and, and follow all of the code and all of the custom. And the apostle Paul is saying, No, like that's not, that, that's not what it is. We, we are not trapped within the law. And he's beginning to explain the role of the law to the person who has faith in Christ. And, and this is what he says in verse 10 he says, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, as we read before, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's, in, in, the, in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. I want to read that one more time in verse 11. If you have your Bible with you, this is a passage that you circle. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So what should this do to you? What should this do to your mentality and the way that you treat people? You should recognize as a believer in Christ that every single one of us are under the same punishment. Every single one of us are under the same curse, but it is only because of my faith in Christ That I have new life, that I have forgiveness, that I am a new creation, that I am empowered to live differently. It is only because of what Jesus did on the cross, and so I can't look at someone else with judgment. Saved by the grace of God, so would I go. So would I go in that same direction. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be that person trapped in addiction. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be that person whose family is falling apart. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be in the worst of situations. We have no right to look at people and scorn them because it's only by faith that we've been saved. It's only by faith that we have been transformed. Hebrews chapter 10 verse one, it describes the law this way. It says, for the law being only a reflection of the blessings to come and not their substance can never make perfect those who come near by the same sacrifices repeatedly offered year after year. Hebrews 1. Scripture is clear that your attempts to follow the law are not going to erase these marks. But the, what the law will do, is that as you look at it and as you understand it, and I'm gonna tell you, the closer you get to God, the more obvious it becomes. I could not do this on my own. The more you study what the commandments mean and the depths into which they go, and then when you look at Jesus taking it even further, and he, and he says, If you even looked lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus takes the law and he expands them even even further into the depths of your soul and into your thinking. And what all of that should do is provide to you the recognition that I have sinned. But here's one thing the law cannot do. The law cannot invalidate the promise. Now this is where it gets cool. If you've been with us through the last few weeks, I think you're gonna see this really clearly. Some of this, you might have to go back and study if you're just hopping in with us today. But as we've been looking at the story um, through scripture and we started with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve is the first place that we see the promise that after they sinned, God spoke and and he said that through your offspring, singular, your child, I'm gonna crush the head of that serpent. And that's the beginning of the promise of the gospel. It's the beginning of the promise that Jesus would come and he would defeat sin and defeat Satan. It's the beginning of that. And then it's made a little bit more clear to Abraham when God says, I am going to bless all nations through you. And it's one of the promises that the Messiah is going to come through your line, Abraham. And that promise was passed down through Jacob. I'm going to bless all nations through you. And then we get to Egypt and we get to the law. And I want you to see that when you think of the Old Testament, you really shouldn't just think of the Old Covenant laws. You shouldn't just think of what we get here in Exodus 20. You're thinking when you describe what does the Old Testament teach, it should really start with those promises. And what Galatians begins to do in chapter three, verse 15, I'm gonna read you, it's three passages. This is another great section to to circle in your scripture. Put this up on the screen, Galatians chapter three, verse 15. He's writing to the church. It says, dear brothers and sisters, Here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. God is always good to his word, amen? And so when he promises that a blessing is gonna come to all nations, but then the nation of Israel, and God says, I am going to raise up this nation, and he's gonna work through this nation, the instructions and the regulations and the commandments that he gave to this nation, it does not negate the promise that was given, and that promise was the coming of Christ. The provision of a sacrifice that could really give New life. And, and if you're not clear, of like, okay, but that, that's what they say in the New Testament. How, how can we be sure? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. In the Old Testament, this is an Old Testament book, and it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers of the day where I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my covenant people. I will put my word within them. The indwelling presence of Christ, the spirit of God in you, it was foretold in the Old Testament. It preceded the law and the promises that were given to Adam and to Abraham and to Jacob. The promise was always there. When you think of the Old Testament, it shouldn't be the law because the law was 430 years after the promise. The promise preceded it. And when we talk about the lower story and the upper story, the lower, like what what is God doing through Moses? But when we go to the upper story, you can begin to see the story of redemption that was right there from the time that Adam and Eve fell into sin, the promise that, that God was true to all the way through the time of Christ and the time of the church. And the connection between the two is not this separation that there, there's just the, the, the covenant and the laws and the regulations. The promise was there before. And so the, these commands that, that show us our sinfulness, they, they, they can't fix us and they, they can't invalidate the promise that God had already given to us. And here, here's one thing, the third thing for today, the thing that the law continues to do. The law continues to to lead us to Christ. It teaches you and it shows you your brokenness and your need. Galatians chapter three, verse 24, it puts it this way. It says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. Some of your translations will say tutor, some will say guardian, but I want to tell you that in our t- current time and culture, we don't have a good comparison for the illustration that the Apostle Paul is making here. If you read um, Socrates or a- any of the, any things about the, the time of Greek philosophy, you'll come across the, this this term um, of pedagogue. That's the word that's used here, the, the pedagogue. It was someone who was either a slave or a free man, but they would be given charge over a person's child or children from the time they were age 6 to 16. And their job as the pedagogue, as the tutor or the guardian, was to protect that child. They, they walked with them to school. They, they sat there by their shoulder when they were eating their meals. And if they were eating the wrong thing, it, like they were allowed to put their hands on the child. They were not a teacher. They would walk them to school, and then there would be a teacher that instructed them, but they would make sure that child didn't get into trouble on the way to school. The role of the pedagogue was for 10 years of their life to make sure that that child was doing what it needed to do, but the pedagogue was not supposed to be there forever. There was a time period of protection and instruction and correction that was given. That was the role of the tutor. That was the role of the guardian in this illustration that he's using here. And Socrates writes about his and talks about his and the way that it impacted them. One of the things that he says, and when he talk about it with other things, Socrates would actually say, it's an interesting thing about the pedagogue that, A person who is a slave will have charge over a person who is a free person. And it's just an interesting dynamic to that time. But so many of us have made ourselves a slave to the tutor, where we have seen as the object of our life the instruction rather than what it was supposed to lead us towards. Because what the passage says is the law is a guardian, is a tutor, is a pedagogue until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And so, this is actually something the law still continues to do. It drives us towards Christ, it drives us towards our need for Him. The fact that there is nothing that we could do to fix what the law has shown us. And, Band, if you guys want to come out, I am going to make you lose all your bets because I'm going to end this message on time. Deal with that. That's right. Three minutes. Let's go, baby. There is a purpose to the law still today. That as you read it and it says, Don't do this, your heart says, Yep, I've done that. Don't act this way, don't think this way. Yep, I've acted that way and I've thought this way. And this is not to be permissive and say, just put as many checkboards, check marks on the board as you want. No, that's not what it is. But Christ came to save you from the curse of the law. In fact, You know, if we were to put Jesus' name on the board, there's no marks under his name. And what we know about his life is that he always loved God. He never set idols before him. He never lusted. He honored his parents. He lived a completely sinless life. so that when this punishment was due on your life, he would carry the weight of the punishment. On the cross, he suffered and he bled and he died to pay for the sins that you've committed, to pay for the sins that I've committed. And the gift that you receive when you make a decision that through faith to receive what he did for you is that you get his clean slate and he takes your sin Following the rules can never fix this. But the whole point of the to is to act as a tutor, as a guardian, to lead you to this place where you have the faith to say, I see that I am a sinner. I recognize that I cannot fix myself. But I recognize that God, you so loved the world that you sent your son. So that whoever believes will not perish, but will have eternal life and that is a gift that he offers, but is so often refused. Someone will say, no, I gotta clean myself up. I gotta clean myself up by putting less check marks on the board. No, that's not how it works. You can't fix yourself. You can't make it better. But when you come in faith to Christ, and Hebrews makes it clear that Abraham, he was considered righteous because of faith. Same story, different times, different covenants, same promise, same story. So the thing that I want on your head and heart, have you arrived to the place where you have made the decision of faith? Where you say, my sins are great, but God's love is greater. So I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. And what scripture says is you will be saved. But you have to make that decision. God is already moving towards you. Let's pray together. God, for anyone in the sound of my voice who is working through the decision, give them the courage, and I just pray by your Holy Spirit that you would give them the confidence to take this step where they say, I see that I have sin and I can do nothing about it, but I see God's love is greater in sending his son, and so I believe in your name, Jesus. I believe in your work on the cross and I believe that you will make me a new creation. And as you pray that prayer and you believe that in your heart, God will begin to heal, he will begin to guide and he says your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And we as a church rejoice in the new life that is only found in Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?